we've been in a series on the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, and the series is titled, Weak is Strong. Weak is Strong. And as I've had the privilege of talking to some of you and meeting and counseling, you know, one of the most common themes that I'm hearing from the church is that this book is nothing like I thought it would be. And I think some of us are discovering that together as we're diving deeper into it and making our way further into that. And I think part of what we're understanding is that, you know, the the New Testament Corinthian church is, is kind of presented almost as a New Testament fraternity. And so we expect to see Paul's kind of apostolic strength and his determination in dealing with problems. But instead, we encounter his humanity. We encounter his fears. We see him talking about his weakness. In fact, when he goes to make his defense on why the Corinthians should follow him, he does it from a position of weakness and talking about his weakness. And so tucked at the very center of this book is something extremely unexpected about the very nature of grace, where grace works best in weakness. And so we're discovering that together. We're learning that together. And it's fascinating and intriguing. And God really has us on a journey. And this morning's journey takes us to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So you can open up your Bibles there. If you didn't bring a Bible, it'll be flashed on the screens to your right and left. We're going to read chapter 7, verse 2, through the end of chapter 7. Focusing more beginning in verse 5, though. Title for this morning's message is, Broken relationships is their life after grief. Broken relationships is their life after grief. Chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for as I said before, that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of all of your your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief had produced in you, 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Let's pray together. Lord, we have a simple request this morning. And that is, would you allow your light and your heat to strike your word? That it might illuminate the way for us. That it might be applied in a white hot way to our hearts. And that we might see the way forward more clearly towards you. And towards applying this very passage in our life. Lord, may you be glorified as a result of this passage preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have arrived at a rather pivotal point in our study of what has become a surprising epistle. Um, In fact, if this were a movie, this would probably be the flashback point of the movie because this passage that we just read starts with a return to chapter 2. Now you may recall that there was a section in chapter 2 where Paul was was describing his, his frustrated affection with the Corinthians. They were supporting this this seditious leader. They were coming under the influence of these intruders from the outside that were seeking to lull them away or lure them away from Paul. And they were essentially rejecting Paul and rejecting his role into their hearts and their church. And as a result, his heart was utterly broken. And so he sends a letter to them that he refers to in chapter 2, verse 4, which historians, theologians have called it the sorrowful letter. Some have called it the the severe letter. It's a letter that was actually lost to us. We don't have this letter. So he sends the letter to the Corinthians, and then he sends Titus either with the letter or following the letter. We don't really know that. But he sends Titus along to just see what happened, to kind of assess the real damage on the ground in Corinth. And having sent the letter and then sent Titus, Paul begins this long wait. He was burdened, he was worried, he was discomforted, his, his soul was aching because he just didn't know what would happen with, in his relationship with these people that had been born out over so many years. This is, this is a group of people that he loved, but would they, would they reject him? Would they flush away 
the history that they had shared together for, for these years? I guess the larger question is, the more important one to Paul was, would they respond to the Lord? So Paul knew that Titus would have to pass through Troas once he was returning from Corinth. And so he went to Troas to kind of intercept Titus because he was so anxious for news. He was so anxious about what was taking place. And Paul recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he said, quote, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So he goes to Troas, he waits for Titus, so anxious to hear some news, but Titus never shows. And this just effectively cranked the dial up on Paul's anxiety from like a five to a nine, to the point where Paul was utterly preoccupied with what was going on in Corinth. In fact, if you want to understand how bad it was, just think about what he said, that a door opened up, a door for ministry opened up for him in Troas, but he took leave of it. He says, I went on to Macedonia. By the way, when Paul uses that phrase, a door open, he uses that several times in the New Testament. It typically means that some divine appointment was opened for him. So Paul was saying, God went before me, a divine appointment opened, but I couldn't take it. I was too anxious. I was too worried. I didn't know what was happening with the Corinthians. I was too tormented to walk through the door. Now, I realize you might be sitting there saying, you know, that's all fascinating and interesting history, Dave, but, you know, really, what does, what's the point of all this? What does that have to do with where the text is in chapter 7? What I want to ask you to do is just follow along with me for a second as we approach what is, was really the climax of this drama that began in chapter 2. Because we're, we're, we're about to see what the point of this whole thing is. And as Paul seeks to wrestle with the question and answers the question of what happened with the Corinthians. Because when when we leave chapter 2, Paul has kind of left us hanging in the air. He doesn't really talk about where it all wrapped up. What Paul does is he launches into this defense that lasts for five different chapters. In fact, we've been in this since November, we've been in this defense pocket, this excursus, if you will, this diversion that Paul went on to try to defend himself. And he kind of left us hanging in chapter 2 with what happened with Titus. Where was Titus? Did Titus ever come back? And so now having made his defense, Paul picks up the storyline that began in chapter 2 in chapter 7, verses Five and beyond. So this is, as, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. He says in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And then look at verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, here's the logical question that we have to ask here. Okay, now, now let's just stop. Let's step back. What's going on? 
What's going on here? Why did Paul go off in that five-chapter defense to the Corinthians? Why this vivid description of the emotional impact that all of this had upon Paul? Why is it important that we know about his affliction, that we know about his fears and his depression? And what should we make of Titus coming back, of the Corinthians repenting? Well, quite simply, this story and this section portrays how Paul dealt with broken relationships. How he dealt with broken relationships. And you know, if there was a name or a face that just flashed up on your mental screen when I said broken relationships, I want to suggest that God wants to speak to you this morning as well about broken relationships. So now let's just ask a few questions of the text and really see where Paul is going, beginning with what, what is a broken relationship? Well, here's how I define a broken relationship. A broken relationship is a close relationship where two things happen. Two things happen. First, there is a rejection of your role in their life. There's a rejection of your role in their life. It's that moment when we realize, you know what, I, I have no place with them anymore. I I have no standing with them anymore. It's almost like my role has been erased out of their mind. I've been removed. So the first part of it is a rejection of your role in their life. And then secondly, is where you, you personally realize that rejection. And you recognize, you know what, I I've been cut off. I've been, I've been rendered irrelevant to this person that I was once so close to. In other words, there's two separate things we're dealing with here. Two separate things. There's both, there's both the gunshot of rejection, the gunshot of rejecting the role, and then there's the wound of rejection that follows. The wound of rejection. And so for Paul, it was both the threat of losing his role as a father to the Corinthians, his role as a pastor leader among the Corinthians, his role as a founder of that church. Because these folks had swallowed slander and they had been seduced away from Paul and away from his leadership and away from a love for him. And all of his love for this church, all of his history with the church, his role as a leader in the church, all of that was under threat. The threat of rejection. And what I love about Paul is he doesn't hide the impact of that upon him. He doesn't act like he's above it. He doesn't act like he's too much of a man to acknowledge it. He says in verse 5, for even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. I was restless, he says. We were afflicted at every turn. I was fighting without. I had fears within. He's talking and acknowledging all of this legitimate emotional upheaval that he's experiencing. And you know what? The reality of it is that many of us can relate to Paul. You arrived here thinking about some of these very things this morning. And I don't know what that might be for you. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a father that just wasn't, wasn't like he wasn't around. He was completely absent. 
In fact, he was so absent in your life that you never really had the opportunity to fulfill the role of son or the role of daughter. You were, your role in the family was rejected. Or maybe it's the sister that just, just won't give you access, won't let you in, just holds you at, at arm's length. Or, or maybe it's the child. You know, the child who craves independence and craves it so much that they don't want the parents' influence in their life. And so they inadvertently and sometimes unintentionally, but they essentially reject the role of the parent and the influence of the parent in their life. Or maybe it's somebody outside of the family for you. Maybe it was that once close friend who now just kind of, you don't even understand it all, but just unilaterally shuts you out, shuts you down, and and you don't even understand why, and you're not sure what to do with all of that. It's a broken relationship. See, one of the key phrasings in the, the definition that I gave you is it was a close relationship. In other words, it's somebody like Paul did with the Corinthians that you loved, that you served, that you had made sacrifices for or with. Because only the fracture of a close relationship stirs the kind of emotions that Paul uses in verse 5 and verse 6. And so Paul was saying, Corinthians, let me just, let me just be real with you. This This was the wound after the gunshot. I was depressed. I was fearful. I felt afflicted. See, see, when someone you love just arbitrarily changes the rules of the relationship, doesn't discuss it, just changes the rules, or says, you know what, I know I play that role in your life, but I'm no longer going to play it, and I'm not even going to explain to you why. I'm just going to pull out or pull back. And they won't let you in. You know, it's... it stirs a deep pool of pain within us. And it can result in the worst kind of rejection that you can experience as a human being. You know, Paul uses an interesting word in, in verse 6. He, he says he was downcast. That word literally means depressed. He was depressed. In other words, the idea behind downcast is not simply I was humbled. The idea behind downcast is I was humiliated. I was humiliated in this relationship. That vote of no confidence in me that came in rocked my world. Their relationship, his relationship with the Corinthians was broken. You know, it's a sobering moment when you realize in Scripture that Paul's persecutors never broke his heart. It was those that he loved that did that. And it's probably going to be the same for you. And Paul's life may be different from ours in in many different ways, but you know what? He gets the anguish that we feel over broken relationships. He gets the pain. He gets the kind of grief that is spawned when someone we love denies us a place, how that grief can stalk us and haunt us and at times in our worst moments taunt us and convince us that we're something we're not. So what did Paul do with that? I mean, here he has this situation that seems like it's a burden that he carries each and every day. What did he do? How did Paul respond to his broken relationship? Well, Paul responded in two different ways by this kind of severing or the threat of the severing with the Corinthians. Both of them, I think, a little surprising. First, Paul pursued them. 
Paul pursued them. He went after them. He wrote to them. He talks about this in verse 8 where he says, for even I, if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. He, he sent them a couple of different letters, three or four different letters. He sent Titus to them. He talks of praying for them. And what we begin to see as we drop deeper and move further into 2 Corinthians that for, is that for Paul, it was the gospel, not his flesh. It was the gospel that determined his response to the Corinthians. And that's a really important distinction to make because so often it is our flesh that determines our response to people that reject us. See, the, the, the flesh basically says, my reality and my, dis- my response is determined by how I feel. Not by what I believe, not by God, the gospel, not by what Christ has done for me, but how I feel in the moment. So we lash out in anger. So we start to trash this person. So we look for ways for revenge. See, when someone rejects us, there's something inside of us that just starts to scream. Our soul starts to scream. And it doesn't say pursue them. It says punish them. It's not about pursuing. It's about punishing. Because we're all born with this this kind of, oh, no, you won't. It's like a chip inside of us. It's something embedded in our DNA. It's It's the, oh, no, you won't gene. Oh, no, 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 you're not going to do this to me. In fact, I do this to you. That's how this works. Nobody gets over on me. Nobody rejects me. I reject you. And that's your punishment for doing this to me. See, the natural response to being hurt is to want to retaliate. It's, it's the human response. I heard about a woman recently who whose husband divorced her, and she was so angry that she found her ex-husband's sports car. She disassembled the passenger side door of his car. She inserted a marble in the door, and then she reassembled the door so that every time he took a turn, this marble would be going back and forth, driving him crazy. He had... He had many different mechanics take it apart, try to figure out what's wrong with the door. It took the mechanics months to find this one little single marble. And when they eventually found it, there was a little note that was tucked in there, just a little note that was there that basically said, you finally found it, you blankety-blank idiot. (laughs) See, that's the typical response. That's the typical response. That's where all of our mind goes. It's basically a way to say, oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. You're going to pay. I'm not going to pursue you. I'm going to punish you. You're going to pay. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it's not quite that dramatic. Oftentimes in marriage, it's much more subtle. It's, it's the silent treatment. We do that with our spouse. We do that with the kids sometimes. It's kind of like we're angry and so we erase them. Oh, no, no, you're, you're erased right now. You have no voice. You have no role. You have no place in my life. I don't even want to hear it. And it's just a subtle way that we, 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 we don't pursue, we punish. Sometimes it happens through gossip. We find a listening ear so that we can quietly, subtly begin to assassinate the character of the person that has hurt us. But here's Paul. 
pursuing, pursuing the Corinthians of all people, pursuing the people that probably inflicted some of the deepest emotional wounds that he ever experienced in life, and he's going after them. He's writing them one letter, two letters, three letters, four letters, sending Titus, praying for them, crying out to God, what can I do, Lord, to win these people that I love? He's so different than me. So Paul pursued them. Secondly, Paul was honest with them. You know, sometimes we can talk about the pursuit of reconciliation in a way that removes the guts from grief. Because grief has to have guts to it. You have these Corinthians. They're they're withdrawing. They're drifting. Paul was grieving, but, boy, he still sends them a strong letter expressing to them in gracious but clear terms exactly where he thought they were wrong. And here's the thing. It worked. It worked. Look at verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. They were grieved through repenting. See, when a relationship breaks down, our desire, our instinctive desire is pretty much to protect ourselves or to protect the peace that we have in our life And oftentimes, the response that we have internally to that is to just want to go silent. It's to just run silent. It's to submerge, and and basically, we lose our voice. You know, these Corinthians that we have in our life, because we all have Corinthians, don't we? And we are Corinthians to others, so don't get smug about it. These Corinthians that we we love are drifting, are being seduced by something outside of our control, And we lose the voice to speak. We lose the guts to speak. We lose the clarity to speak. Happens all the time in the home. You know, we have a troubled sibling, perhaps, or you're in an abusive marriage, or maybe you have a a prodigal, and the family chooses peace over honesty. And and who here, honestly, couldn't relate to that? I mean, we have all chosen peace at certain times in a relationship over honesty. There are some times where maybe that might even be wise. I'm talking about an instinct that becomes a habit, a habit that becomes a disposition, a disposition that becomes a lifestyle in the way we begin to relate to that person so that eventually we find ourselves spiritualizing our silence as if it's the highest act of love. what God's calling us to do. And the amazing thing about this story is that Paul grieved and Paul spoke. Paul grieved and he spoke. If you know somebody in a physically abusive, sexually abusive relationship, you need to encourage them to speak. To speak. Love never enables abusive behavior. In fact, the highest form of love is not to accommodate abuse, but to speak to abuse. It's to expose the evil of abuse. Whether it's the Corinthians or whether it's whoever. We, we don't help, let's switch it over to a prodigal or a sibling that's just 
just left orbit. We don't help people like that by, by accommodating them, by appeasing them, because it feeds the wrong thing. There are some kinds of selfishness that's so entrenched that when you actually accommodate it, it grows. What's the Churchill quote? He said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. Think about that. An appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. See, the appetite of the crocodile, the appetite of the person who is locked in a self-destructive selfishness, the appetite of that person is a crocodile. It's never satisfied. And so we must speak honestly. We must speak to the danger. If necessary, we must flee and speak. But we must call for help and be honest. So Paul pursued them. Paul was honest with them. That's how he responded to his broken relationship. And then here's another question, and we'll make this the final one. And I want to answer this in several different parts. Final question is, what hope do we have for a broken relationship? What hope do we have for broken relationships? And I want to give you four different thoughts. Here's the first one. First is that truth takes time. That's one of the hopes we have, that truth takes time. So the Corinthians receive Paul's letter. It seems to trigger this sorrow that they have. And then the sorrow then leads to repentance. Paul says in, again, verse 9, as it is, rejoice. I rejoice not only because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then verse 10, for godly grief produces something. It produces a repentance. In other words, the truth didn't result in immediate clarity. It didn't for them. It doesn't for me. And it doesn't for you either. Apparently, there is a process that we must undergo. There is a process, starting with grief, eventually manifesting into godly sorrow, which then gives way to repentance and delivers us to the point where we change. But here's the point that Paul had to wrestle with. It's the truth takes time. Truth takes time. And we don't control the clock. Don't you wish you did? I mean, I wish I did. I controlled the clock on how I change, the, the amount of time it takes me to change, the people that I love to change. We act like we control the clock, like our efforts ultimately determine the speed of the people's change around us. We like to think that we do. You know, the more effort that I put in, the quicker they're going to change. Wouldn't it be great if it all worked that way? Wouldn't it be great if it was some kind of divine transaction where, where people's, the people that we love, the Corinthians in our life, their response was proportional to what we poured into them? Wouldn't that be great? Because we could just work the deal where we punch the clock a little bit more and then they change quicker. I mean, honestly, this was one of the biggest problems in my marriage when we first got married. And in fact, when, when my kids became teenagers, it returned as a problem as well. Because I was craving to control the clock. I wanted my hands on the clock. I wanted to determine the time in which change would take place. And so when I thought, Kim, 
or the kids were not changing quickly enough, I needed to add my effort even more. I needed to add more words. It was like a theology of redundancy. So what I do is I just say it, and then I repeat it, and then I repeat it again, and then I go repetitious on them, and then I add a little redundancy to my repetition. And we all know that works so well, doesn't it? I mean, that's just a great strategy, because that really helps us, doesn't it? My problem has never been silence. My problem is impatience. My problem is not silence. My problem is arrogance. I think I just need to say it more, say it clearer. That I'm the solution. Dave is what this situation needs. Josh passed me along a quote between the services by David Foster Wallace. He once said, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. So we just don't know how, how God works in these things. It's a, it's a great mystery. I mean... Here's the funny thing. Titus goes, and Titus is the one that experiences, you know, the great blessing of their repentance in the moment. Paul's put in all the work. Paul was the one that relocated to be among them. He preached with them. He cared for them. He he sacrificed his life for them. And then there's this whole Titus effect thing where Paul's been laboring in the field for years. Titus goes along for, you know, a few months, and fruit blossoms all over the place. We're like, wait a minute, what, what is that all about? Wait, God, that, that's not right. There's no justice to that. I was the one that put in the time. I, I should be the one to pray the sinner's prayer with them. Or I should be the one that's there to bow my head when they're repenting of this. What, what, what's going on here? But, you know, like, like Paul, we have to live content with sending the message and waiting for God sending the message and waiting for God to work in whatever way he will and whatever time he will because his timing ultimately ends up addressing a number of things beyond one person's change. So what, what hope do we have for broken relationships? Here's another one. That even Corinthians can experience dramatic change. Even Corinthians can experience dramatic change. Change. I mean, it's absolutely amazing to hear how Paul describes what takes place among the Corinthians. You're, you're wondering, is this, is this actually the same people that he wrote that first epistle to? You know, where the man is, 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 is the, the, the guy is living with, oh, I forget what it was in chapter 6. They're crazy on the gifts. They're spiritually immature. They don't have any leaders whatsoever. They're rebelling against Paul. And yet this is the way he begins to describe them in verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief or this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. What an amazing description of a screwed up group of people that have experienced the power of God. I mean, this was a relationship that was so broken, Paul couldn't even go to Corinth. He had to send Titus. He sends Titus because if he went himself, he probably, he thought he would be ejected. But there's this sense where we begin to see that even the worst of sin, even the Corinthian sin, even stubborn sin, even deeply held suspicions 
that other people planted in the mind of the Corinthians that Paul had no control of over was no match for the power of grace. Even the sinful judgments that they held against Paul, even the sinful judgments that that person that you're thinking about right now is holding against you, how they have you labeled, how they have you put in a category, and you feel they'll never see you any different than that. Even that, God says, I got that. I have control even over that. They don't feel that way any longer than I ordained that they do. So when grace comes, even Corinthians experience this dramatic change. And by the way, Paul's fears are smoked out as well here. It's interesting that he just, he has a bead on where he thinks the Corinthians are, only to find out that they're in a completely different place. Paul is just like you and I. In other words, he sees this bad situation, he projects himself into it, he exaggerates the effects of sin, he exaggerates the power, or he minimizes the power of grace, he sees sin as big, and grace as small. And so he just imagines that the Corinthians are just going off the rails only to find out there's like revival going on in Corinth. And they're repenting and Titus is there and there are tears being shed and weeping and he's just pacing back and forth in Troas and then moving on to Macedonia worried because he doesn't know what God's doing. He doesn't understand what's happening in this relationship. And he knows that they think a certain way about him and he can't get at it. There's nothing he can do about that, and it drives him nuts. See, because of the cross, there's something at work by the grace of God that is more powerful than sin. Because of the cross, there's something at work in Corinthians that's more powerful even than the labels that they will attach to you. And that power sparks change in the most unlikely places. Title title of today's message is Broken Relationships. Is there there hope after grief? Is there life after grief? And the answer that Paul, Paul gives us is yes, absolutely. There is life after grief because of the gift of repentance. Here's another point. Here's another point as we're trying to answer that question of what hope do we have for broken relationships? And that is God does comfort. God does comfort. Look at verse 13. Therefore, he says, we, we are comforted. Was there an attack? Well, yeah, but they were comforted. Accusation, rejection. Was there depression and discouragement and feeling downcast? Yes, yes, and yes. All of that is true. But it all fades as God begins to act. The, the storm that capsized the soul of Paul almost daily is resolved in a word because the God of all comforts has shown up and he's accomplished what is the utterly unexpected. The repentance of Corinthians. Who could have believed it? The Corinthians have repented. And it's not like it even stops there, but, but you know, just, just as, I mean, you probably noticed this too. Trials in your life tend to come in clusters. I don't know why God does it that way, but they tend to come in clusters. Well, well, for Paul, comfort came in the same way. Comfort came 
in a cluster as well. So he talks in verse 4 about, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. And then in verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And then he summarizes it in verse 13. Therefore, we are comforted. And then he goes on to say, and besides of our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. And you just experience this overwhelming, this rolling joy that springs from the comfort that not only God brought to, 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 to Paul through the Holy Spirit's work, but also because of, of Titus. See, part of what the sub-theme is here is, is Paul has these Corinthians that he's always dealing with, but then he's got Titus. He's got the Titus in his life. He's got that guy that always remained faithful to him, that, that person that was always there, that, that never really rejected him that never abandoned him, that never pulled away from him. It's, it's as if God is saying, you know, when the Corinthians give you grief, remember Titus. Remember Titus. When the Corinthians make us weak, well, let Titus bring you joy. When the Corinthians break your heart, let Titus comfort you. That God has been faithful to deliver all of us a Titus. And that we have to try, even in those times when the Corinthians are driving us crazy, we have to try to to be grateful and more aware of Titus than we are of the Corinthians. Because God will use Titus to comfort us. Because God does comfort. And then lastly, lastly, this is the last answer, the last response to that question of, is there hope beyond broken relationships? And that is that soon, all will be mended. Soon, all will be mended. We live in a broken world. And broken world, a broken world has broken relationships. And yet the irony of that is that we are called as a church and called as Christians to be people of hope and people of faith despite the reality that we live in a broken world that has broken relationships. And we see that for Paul, even the great apostle Paul, this is something that was a part of his life even up to the moment of his death. You know, I remember years ago being in a really, really dark time because I was just, I was under a lot of pressure, and I was experiencing certain relational problems with, with uh, a, a few individuals. And, and there were some folks that were leaving the church as well that I was pastoring at the time. And in the midst of all of that, God took me to Second Timothy. So we're not talking about Second Corinthians now. We're talking about Second Timothy. Second Timothy is the last book that Paul wrote, the last epistle. He writes it before he dies. And Paul's on the threshold of death. And it is amazing where Paul, at the end of his life, begins to describe all of the broken relationships that he has. All of the things in his life that are just open-ended. Let let me give you a few examples. In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he says, all of Asia has left me. Have you had bad days? None of us can say, all of Asia has left us. He talks about two guys in particular, Figulus and Hermogenes. He says they're gone. 
In chapter 2, Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, they're gone. In chapter 4, he says, Alexander the coppersmith, remember him? Remember he? He was part of the small group. Remember him? He's gone. He did me great harm. Demas. You remember Demas? He was part of the group as well. He's gone. He deserted me. He says, in the, one of the verse, one of the final verses that Paul ever writes before he dies is when I stand to, when I stand to give, give my defense, no one stood with me. All deserted me. Last thing. Last thing he said before he died. And it's hard because we don't expect Paul's story to end this way. We don't expect our story to end this way. And, you know, you can imagine Paul saying, well, wait a minute, I don't get it. We're all, we're all Christians. We're all part of the same, you know, group, and we all love one another, right? We're all based on the Bible, and we have the same authority. We have the same kind of rules of engagement, and we're part of the same church, and we believe in the same God. Shouldn't we be able to resolve this? Shouldn't we be able to bring some kind of closure to this? Shouldn't it, it result in, in resolution? I mean, we're taught in grade school, right? We're taught in grade school English that the elements of a story are character and plot and context and conflict and resolution because it's not a good story unless we have resolution. It's not a successful story unless there's some kind of resolution. It's not a true story unless there's resolution. I must have resolution, But the gospel comes to us in the midst of the fallen world in a broken place where there are broken relationships. And it says that it's not your story that gets resolved right now. That we must trust in God's story. That the gospel represents not only God's story, but it represents the resolution of the most significant relationship in the universe. And it was a relationship where we were the Corinthians, where we were the ones that denied and rejected and betrayed and ran away and became the enemies. And we were separated from our Heavenly Father. We were alienated from our King. We, fl- we f- took flight from the maker of the universe. And in response to that, rather than judging us, rather than coming after us and, and killing us, God sent His Son in the person of Jesus Christ. And he suffered and he died in our place and he rose on the third day. And we now have reconciliation in the most important relationship that matters. And apparently for now, that's all we need. So yeah, you know, I've got relationships you do as well. I hope they get mended. But I can't need that. You can't need that. Because the cross has united us to God and solved our deepest relational problem. And because we have him, you know, we, we hear him. We don't we? We hear his voice whisper to us in those, in those quiet times. Those quiet times where tears are pouring down your face because you just don't get it. You just don't get that relationship. And we hear him saying, don't worry. Repair will come, but not right now. Not right now. But for now, you have all you need. 
So rest in me. Trust in me. You can't enjoy them right now, but you will. So for now, enjoy me. Because for now, that's enough.